Man, what a privilege it is to be up here just to, to hang out with you guys, to open up God's word um, with you. I'm going to give one more uh, announcement. Um, Eric, it would be just, it's just awkward to give this one. Um, but can I just tell you, uh, so our daughter, our youngest daughter now is almost six months. And so about nine months, or not, let's see, about, probably about seven or eight months ago, we did something here called diapers and donuts or donuts and diapers. Um, that was a huge blessing for Ashley and I. People brought uh, donuts, which is awesome. So like, you don't have to wait for diapers and donuts. You can bring us donuts anytime that you want. Um, but uh, we, we, um, y'all brought diapers on, on, that, on a particular day. And I will tell you, um, we still have diapers in our basement, uh, a couple stacks of diapers. We were incredibly blessed, guys. We, I, I, don't know, I don't know if you've looked at the price of those babies in a while, but it's through the roof. Uh, and so we were incredibly blessed by you guys. Uh, you did diapers and wipes. Uh, and um, we, yeah, we, we still have them. And it's amazing. Here's the deal. Eric and Jennifer are getting real close to having a baby. Um, and we are all excited about that. But we're doing diapers and donuts for them, uh, for, for us to be a blessing for them so they can be in the same scenario when they're five, six, seven, eight months down the road with their, with their newbie. So on September 10th, um, uh, would you be willing to bring diapers, donuts, wipes, all those things to bless the, uh, the Moser family? Um, there's a, a tree right outside the door that has apples on it uh, that has different sizes of diapers and some other things that you can grab. Would you grab one of those and then grab some diapers and bring them on September 10th? And we'll eat donuts together and we'll praise God and, and thank him for everything that he's done. So would you just kind of put that on your radar and let's bless the Moser family. All right, so let's pray. Uh, and then we're going to dive into God's word. So, Father, we're just thankful for you this morning. Uh, I just love that we get to gather for the purpose of focusing on you in our families, as an individual, for community, for a hope, uh, for a place to not be isolated and alone, but to come out of the darkness and just be with people. So, Father, I pray that this morning might be an opportunity for us to see the light that comes through Christ, for us to see um, you for who you are. I pray that as we're gathered here, you would do amazing things to your spirit. I'm going to talk, but, Father, if anything's, if anything's going to change, it's going to be because your spirit does something inside of us. And so, um, would you bless our time? We're available for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, would you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1. Uh, as Eric said, uh, we are starting a brand new series. Uh, we're starting a series uh, called Rooted. And the whole idea of Rooted is that we want to know God. And we want that to allow us to have roots that go down deep into the soil of our faith and grows up and produces fruit in our lives. Um, and so we want to focus on this uh, because we want to see growth and we want to see health and we want to see healing. We want to see God doing a movement inside of us that goes outside of these doors. And I love, uh, Eric and I, we didn't actually talk about this, but he just talked about Psalm uh, chapter one. Uh, it's actually something I want to read to you this morning. It's one of my, I think it's my favorite Psalm uh, actually, and it's real quick. Here, here's what it says. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And then in verse 3, he says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that it does, he prospers. I love the image, and I love the picture there that this is a man 
in your context, if you're a lady, a lady who is sitting by the streams, knowing that this is where things grow. They don't grow in the desert. They grow by where water is and roots are growing there and there's fruit coming on the tree. This is, this is what we want out of this rooted series. We want to be people who sit by the stream and have the water of life pouring into us and developing us. And so when we pursue and get to know God, the one who pursued us, I think that we get to grow as strong disciples. I think it begins to just kind of naturally happen. And I'm going to tell you why we're actually doing this series right now. Like we could do it later. We could have done it in the past. But here's why we're doing it right now. How many of you, and please raise your hands, how many of you would say that you're a Christian? Raise your hand. Okay? If you're not, um, talk to one of these who are around you. They'll help lead you to Christ. Okay? How many of you would say, I feel like I've still got a lot of things to learn? Let me see every hand. <laughs> I feel like I've still got a lot to learn. Now, how many of you would say that you've been a believer for a while now and you're still trying to figure out what does it look like to live as a disciple of Jesus? Yeah. Man, we're still trying to figure this out, aren't we? I mean, we would say, like, I know him. I know God. I gave my life to him and I trusted him. I have salvation in him. But I, I wouldn't say, like, I, like, I know him, know him. Like, like, we're on first name basis or, like, I meet with him all the time. I know about him. That's why we're doing this series. Because of all of our hands being raised up in the room right now, we want to know what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus who is growing in our lives. You can look at tons of studies in our culture right now. You can look at Barna. You can see the Pew Research. You can see um, other national surveys that are taken. And you can see that there is a significant gap in what we say we believe and how we're relating to our faith. Significant gap. Um, let me read a couple statistics here for you that I hope that will stir something in you. I don't know if you get stirred by numbers or not, but we're going we're gonna to throw a couple up here. Uh, in a Bar Barna study that was done uh, here recently, uh, Barna said that one in four Americans say that they are a practicing Christian, that they're actually living out their faith. One in four. Math people, how, what's that percentage? 25%, right? 25% of Americans say that they are practicing their faith in Jesus. Now, 20 years ago, that statistic was 45%. So we've declined in 20 years by 20%. We've lost a percentage a year on those who are practicing their faith. Where did the people go? How did we get to where we are? The same Barna study showed that some slid into this category that they would say, we're, we're just non-practicing Christians. We're Christians. We're just non-practicing Christians. That's the category they put themselves. And then there were some who said, no, they are now completely out of the faith. They have to, they've denied Jesus, they've denied ever trusting him, they've denied the faith completely. Now, how does something like that happen? How do we go from 45 to 25 in 20 years? How do people slide away? How do people get to a point where they just don't believe totally at all in Jesus? Now, here's my opinion, you might have a different one, but I think that maybe one of the significant tr contributors is that we might have a deficient understanding of who God is. The, the God that somebody led you to may not be the God of the Bible, may not be who God actually says that he is. I would say that sometimes we have a malnourished faith. Last week we talked about um, there are two dogs that are at war inside of us, and which dog is going to win? It's going to be the one that you feed, right? 
I, I think that in our context, in our culture, and cultural Christianity right now, that we have stopped feeding the dog of faith in our life. And we have stopped, and, and so it's become malnourished. And when you have a malnourished tree, you don't have fruit on that tree. It's not that we don't know about God. We've got plenty of knowledge about him. It's not that we may not believe that there is a God, but I think that in the busyness of our lives, that we just kind of, if, if, we, if we're a believer, we just kind of add sometimes God to our life, sprinkle him in a little bit here and there. Um, because when we were, think about this, when we were in college or when we were a little bit younger and there was less responsibility in our lives, our social calendar wasn't quite what it is right now, there was less demands, how many would say like, man, I had this vibrant faith. I trusted Jesus, and those were the times in my life where I remember, like, I mean, God was doing amazing things in my life, but now as you get older, the social calendar has changed, more responsibility has hit your calendar, and um, you just feel like, man, there's just not enough time to do everything. I don't have time. Or maybe we've never really been discipled into the faith. We came to Christ because somebody was very convincing and they told us about Jesus or they told us about God and like we wanted to get them off of our back to stop talking to us. They were a really good evangelist. And so they brought us in and we said, yes, I believe. But then after we came to Christ, they just kind of left us at the doorstep of the church. Then walk with us, didn't disciple us, didn't show us what it looked like to be a believer. They said, okay, you've crossed the line of salvation. Now you're good. Now you go figure out what you're supposed to do next. That's what happened to me. Um, when I came to Christ, man, I was vibrant. I was on fire. I was reading. I, I wanted to know more. But there was nobody that was around me to say, hey, let me take you by the hand and walk you towards Jesus. Let me show you what it looks like to be a disciple of, of Christ. Now you're a believer. Let me show you how to grow up in your faith. What happened was I was left trying to figure out how to do it alone. And so I watched other believers. I don't know if you watch believers and try to do what they've done, but sometimes that's not a great idea, right? Because sometimes we fall. And it, it, like, no, we're not perfect, but I was watching people who fall to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus rather than learning from Jesus himself and somebody walking me along the, the path. Or maybe even worse yet, I didn't even know enough to want to have somebody to disciple me. Wasn't even a, a word in my context. Had no idea about it. How many of you in here right now, we're doing a lot of hand raising today. How, how many of you right now, would say, I was intentionally discipled by somebody in my life. Just raise your hand. Fantastic. It's great that somebody grabbed a hold of you. How many of you would say, and this, there's no judgment in this, how many of you say, man, I came to Christ, but nobody, nobody showed me what it was like to be a disciple of Jesus? Yeah. And we want it, don't we? Don't we want it so, so bad? Let me tell you this. Being discipled helps you grow roots. Being discipled helps you grow roots that get to be watered by Jesus. And discipling somebody else helps them grow roots. Jesus said, go make disciples. Make disciples. There was no end to that. It was just go and do it. Not just, once you, not just do one and then, and then be done. To go and make disciples. So let's talk about why roots and foundations here, why, why they matter so much, okay? About 13 years ago, Ashley and I, uh, we made a trip to Washington, D.C. Never been to D.C. Been, you guys been to D.C.? Uh, went one time. Now, I don't know how y'all travel and do vacations and stuff, but like when I go somewhere, I like, I want to see it all, right? I'm like, we got two days. What can we fit into these two, two days? How many of y'all are like pack it in people? 
okay? How many of you are like, bro, just chill out. Like, I want to sit and I want to see one thing and we can go do that, right? The older I get, that's where I'm at. I was just like, let's just, but at this point in my life, like, let's go see everything. So I've never been there. Like, I don't know if we're ever going to come back here again. So I'm like, I want to see the, I want to see um, the Lincoln Memorial. So we went to see the Lincoln Memorial. I want to see uh, the Constitution. And so we went to the National Archives. I want to see the Capitol building. I want to see all these things. Uh, and so uh, Mount Vernon actually was my favorite place. Mount Vernon was amazing. Uh, you, it's not right down in D.C. You go and because George Washington lived there and you got the whole, the whole field and all that kind of stuff. So I loved it. But the place that stood out to me the most, the thing that I thought was the most amazing was the Washington Monument. Washington Monument was, was phenomenal. It was impressive to me because there's not really uh, too many structures like this in the world. It's the tallest structure of this kind uh, in, in the world. It's 555 feet tall. It's 55 feet wide. It's truly an impressive structure. Um, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to, uh, to imagine that this is just sitting on top of the concrete. This big old structure, 555 feet in the air, 55 feet wide, and it's got no foundation whatsoever. What would happen if a storm came ripping through there that was large enough and went strong enough that it might affect this? What would happen if there's no foundation? It's eventually, it's going to topple over, is it not? It's going to become dangerous for people around it. It's, go, it's going to fall. It's not going to be there anymore. It's going to fall over and it's going to be destroyed. So here's the most impressive feature about the monument to me. Below the surface is 37 feet of foundational work that you can't see. It's what's holding what's up on top. Later, that structure was even reinforced with more, um, uh, with, with more uh, concrete support to uphold the structure. This is one of the original drawings. I don't think you can see it that well. But down at the bottom, that's the, uh, sh that's the, the foundation down there. Did you see where we're going here? Without a deep foundation, the monument's just going to fall over. But there was somebody who was wise enough during the building and the construction of this who said, you know what? With all the investment that we're going to put into this structure, with everything that you're going to be able to see that's above the top, let's make sure that the foundation is going to be able to sustain what's above the surface line. So they intentionally, they dug down deep. How many buildings have you seen destroyed because the foundation was wonky? How many men and women's lives have you seen destroyed because their foundation was wonky or they had no foundation whatsoever? Here, here's the connection. Without a faith that is deeply established and has foundational roots, a root system that works, it's easy to see how people could slide away. It's easy to see 45% go to 25%. And here's what I would say for you and for me who have heard these statistics. I would argue that we have gone from 45 to 25% in practicing Christianity because we haven't had a foundation that's been able to stand up to the storms. Our foundation hasn't been strong enough to handle the storms that our faith takes from our culture. We don't have answers to questions because we haven't gone below the surface. We bend morals and we bend ethics because we don't know what to do with the onslaught of pressures that are coming at us because our root system isn't strong like God has designed us to be. Our root system is weak. We need roots that go down deep so that we can stand up and be strong. And so through our Rooted series, we want to spend time getting to know this God who we say that we follow. 
We want to know what our place is inside the church and how God wants to use us inside the church to help us grow and to help others grow. And we want to discover what it looks like to connect with our God-given and purpose. So for you and I, we want, we want more than just sitting in a seat. We want, we want men and women who are on fire for Jesus and that are making an impact in the world. Okay? You guys ready to get started and rooted? Okay, that's all just the beginning. That's all just laying the foundation, the groundwork. And so um, let me start by asking uh, this question. Who is the God that we follow? Who's the God that we follow? This is, this is the, the focus for this morning. Um, no matter what your background is this morning, we all have certain ideas of who God is, right? Maybe um, you had parents that discipled you and took you to church. Maybe you had a grandma or a grandpa who discipled you and took you to church. Maybe you had a friend who came alongside of you. Maybe you believe that God exists, but he's kind of like this, this old grandpa in heaven um, or he's more like Father Time to you with, a, with the white beard and, and the staff and, and the grandfather clock. It's sitting next to him just kind of sitting back watching to see what's going on, checking in on things from time to time. Maybe you think God created the world, maybe, but he just spun it into existence and, you're just, and he's sitting back just watching to see how this thing works. Just eh, see how it plays out. There's no shortage of images or ideas on who we believe God to be. Or when we think about God, the image that pops into our, our mind. But how about this? How would you sum up God? How would you try to paint an accurate picture of who he is? Think about that. Try to sum up God. Doesn't this seem impossible? <laughs> Doesn't it seem heavy or, or weighty? Um, I don't know if there's enough words. I don't know if there's enough emotions. Or I don't know if we can paint enough pictures to try to capture him. We've tried over the years with, with art and, and, and paint and, and songs and singing to try to sum up who God is. But I, I think we really struggle trying to sum him up in, in a word or a phrase. Um, there's a guy who goes by the name of Skip Moen. He's a biblical language expert and he's a writer. And I want you to listen to what he says. Uh, when you're going through the Rooted series, you'll see this again. He says, God does not come to us in nicely defined, rationally explained thought categories. God does not fit himself into our theological textbooks. God breaks all the rules. He's near, yet transcendent. Clothed in human form, yet holy. More terrifying than can be imagined, yet compassionate. Invisible, yet revealed. Judging, yet merciful. Sovereign, yet humble. No matter where you look, God breaks the molds. What he's saying is that our descriptions are lacking. Like we, we can't do it. It's impossible for us to try to capture his majesty, his glory, his infiniteness. Is that a word? Infiniteness? It's just difficult to try to do it. He's holy. He's perfect. He's just. He's righteous. He's eternal. He's gracious. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And as much as we want to, it is impossible for us to try to get our mind around something like that or around someone like that. And unless God wanted us to know him and he chose to reveal himself to us, we would never, ever, ever be able to know him. But yet here's the good news. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to love him. He wants us to follow him. And so he's given us three primary ways that we can get to know him. Through creation, through Jesus, and through the Bible, through his word. Now through creation, you can look around at the world and you can see that this is the handiwork of a designer, right? 
You may not believe that God did it, but I think you can say that you can't say with intellectual honesty or and the honesty of heart that this all just happened, right? There's too much design for something like this just to accidentally take place. Actually, uh, if we hold to the word of Scripture as being foundational, uh, Paul says in Romans 1 that God says that we have the evidence of creation to point us to God. That there's enough evidence when we look around to see that this didn't just happen, that there is a designer, that God did something like this. And and so um, we're able to see God through his creation. And then uh, also we can see God through Christ, through Jesus, through the person of Jesus. The book of Hebrews says that he is the exact imprint of God. This is who he is. John says that he is the word made flesh. We're able to look at him and we're able to see Jesus through the word of God and we're able to see God through the word of Jesus. Right? John tells us this. And so when we look at Jesus, we're able to say, oh, that's the heart of God. Oh, that's what compassion is supposed to look like. That's what care is supposed to look like. That's what love is supposed to look like. And it looks like God because we see it through Jesus. And so we have Jesus and we have creation, but we also have his word, the Bible. The best way, I think, for you and me to know God today, to get to know him, is to see what God has to say to us about himself. Not what somebody else has to say about him. What does God have to say about himself? Because he wants us to know him. And can I just say, guys, if if you never pick up his word, if the scriptures are are never in your hand and if you never read his word, if if, if the scriptures never become a part of your life, then Jesus is never going to be your focus. It's It's just, it's impossible. You'll never be close to Jesus with a closed Bible. You can't. Francis Chan, I I think it was, said, you can't be close to Jesus when you're far from his word. If your Bible's not open consistently in your life, we're going to have a real blurry vision of who God is and who Jesus is. So we have creation, we have Jesus, and we have the Bible that God uses to tell us about himself. And that means that we can get to know him, and that all that we get to know about God is what he's given us to know him. And what we don't know the mystery that surrounds God, that's his. It's his to know. And if he wants to reveal it to us, he can reveal it to us. And if we want to know more, and maybe God, maybe he'll reveal some, some more of this when we get to eternity, but he doesn't have to. I'm fully expecting to get to heaven and fall down at his feet and, and worship and praise him and do whatever is required and expected of me in heaven, but out of my heart that I think that I'm going to have in heaven, just willingly be down at his feet worshiping him. But then I think there's probably going to be a time where he says, now get up. And when he says, get up, I've got a lot of questions that I want to ask. Right? You guys got any questions that you want to ask? When I get up, I've got questions. Then I'm hoping that he's going to answer them. He doesn't have to. But I've got questions. I want to know where, why the duck built platypus, right? I want to, why did you, why did you create mosquitoes? Why, like they terrorize me. Why, why are they there? Why, God, when I prayed, did it feel like you didn't answer? Why, when I prayed, it felt like you actually did the opposite of what I prayed for? I, if I'm just being honest with you right now, that's one of the things that I'm struggling with just as a follower of Jesus, I pray sometimes about certain things, and then it feels like the opposite happens. I'm like, God, what are you you doing with that right now? And so 
I'm trying to learn how to, I'm going to ask him to get to heaven. Why, why, why did it happen? Why was life so hard? Why, why wasn't it easy? Why did you stink and make me a Cowboys fan? Like, the unanswerable questions. We all got questions that we're hoping to get answered. Now, I want you to shift gears with me here. We're asking the question, who is God? So let's talk about an attribute of God, a characteristic of God that I think is incredibly difficult for us to get our mind around and try to understand. And I don't think there's really any good illustration for it because there's nothing like it in all of creation. Um, I will tell you what it is in a minute. If you look at any world religion, you're going to find that there are deities or a deity or a God that in every world religion that is being worshipped. Certain religions have multiple gods. The Greeks, um, when Paul is writing, when the scriptures of the New Testament are writing, they have all kinds of gods uh, that they pray to. Actually, uh, in the book of Acts, Paul addresses some of this when Paul shows up in a place called the Areopagus in Athens in Rome. He sees something that he calls their objects of worship. So he's in this place where it's the gathering of the gods and there's statues everywhere and there's idols and there's, it's a place of worship. And he's like, I, I can see that you're very religious. I look around and I, and I see all of your gods. You're very faithful. You're very religious. But I also see that you have this statue over here that's to an unknown god. And he's here, I think, just because in case you missed one, you want to make sure that he's not being left out. And Paul says, let me tell you about this one god. Let me tell you about the one that you don't quite understand. And then he goes into... Not this plurality of gods, but one singular God. In our case today, there are Hindus in India and all around the world who believe in thousands of gods and maybe millions of gods, a plurality of gods. And so you just get to choose one for your situation. You go into um, uh, uh, somebody's house in India, you'll see um, different kinds of gods. You'll see one, one that's sitting on a mantle. You'll see another one over here. You'll see another one in the car. And it's all for certain situations. And it doesn't matter which one you choose, just, just choose one. Those who follow Islam and are part of the Muslim faith believe in Allah. They believe that Muhammad was a great prophet of Allah. And so they have one God with an active prophet in Muhammad. And of course, there's so many more world religions around. But here's the distinction that scripture makes of the God of Christianity and the gods of all the other world religions. In Christianity, we find a doctrine called the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity, if you try to look in the scriptures, you're not going to find the word Trinity, but you're going to see the doctrine and the teaching of the Trinity from the front page to the last page. It's all throughout the Bible. And so there's a doctrine of a Trinity that separates God from any other God in the world religions. It's the doctrine that says that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to be really clear here that when we talk about three persons and, and one God, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a belief in three different gods or, or one God who shows up like a shapeshifter uh, in different scenarios. Like in one minute, he's God the Father, and then all of a sudden he stops being God the Father and because he wants to become Jesus and show up differently. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and if he wants to be the Holy Spirit, he has to shift again to become the Spirit. That's something in, in, in theology that's called modalism, that God can only exist in one mode at a time at any given time. But the doctrine of the Trinity is that he is three persons at one time at all times. The Trinity is one God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Always three, but one God. Each has their own distinct role, 
but there is still just one God. I thought this would be helpful. I actually um, pulled this down. Uh, nope, go back. Yeah, so this little picture here, I, I think it's helpful. It's a bit confusing when you first look at it, um, but you look at God in the middle. Okay, this is how the Trinity works. You have God, and you, you splinter off there. God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit, but the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Each have their own distinct role, but they are all one God. This is the Trinity. It's very difficult for us to get our mind around, but this is what Scripture teaches us. These are the knowable yet unknowables of God. This is the characteristic and the attribute of God that we hold to as brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you were discipled, if you weren't discipled, you probably never heard of this. It's probably not something that became foundational for you. But this is something that is foundational to our faith in Christ. Now, people have tried to explain this because of the difficulty of it, just to get our minds around in illustrations. And so you have this first one. Uh, people have tried to explain the Trinity as an egg, right? That you have a raw egg that's in raw form, but you can also have a boiled egg, and you can have scrambled eggs. So you can have three different kinds of eggs, but here's the deal. The scrambled egg can't be the raw egg. The boiled egg can't be the raw egg. It can only be one at a time. So it fails in telling us exact picture of who God is. Another illustration that's been used is water. Um, that water can exist as a chemical, right? An H2O, a gas, but it also can be liquid, but it can be frozen as well. So you have these three different modes of, of water, but this too, it fails because they can't be one or the other at the same time. It's another form of it only shows up in one mode. So this fails too. There is nothing like the Trinity in all of creation. It is unique in only existing in God the, the Father. Eternally three persons in one. Let me show you where it comes from in Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1. So if you're already open to John or Genesis, hold, hold that there and pop over to John also, okay? So in the Old Testament, um, we start with the words, in the beginning, God, right? Now, the Bible doesn't try to tell us where God came from. It doesn't try to answer the question, how old is God? How big is God? Could God do that? It doesn't try to answer those kind of questions. When you open up the scriptures, the assumption is that you're supposed to understand that God has always been. God just is. He's just so powerful that there's never been a time that he's not, and there's never going to be a time that he stops, right? He is, he is God, and so it just jumps right in. And then in the book of John, in the Gospels, the beginning of the New Testament, you have the same words. In the beginning was the word. It's not a coincidence that both start in the same place. Look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now here, you have God, who, who's seen here. Uh, he's also defined in the very same verse, verse 1 and 2, he's defined as the Spirit of God. And so you seem to have two different things happening here. And, and if you look down throughout the chapter, you have God creating. So you have God saying, let there be light. Let there be an expanse. Let there be water. Let there be oceans and seas and land that separates the seas. Let there be vegetables and fruits and kale and carrots and all those things that are supposed to be good for you. Let all those pop up from the ground. Let there be two lights. 
One to govern the day and one to govern the night, the sun and the moon. Let there be sea creatures and land creatures, and let's just fill the earth with this stuff. And at the end of those things, God said, it is good. It is good. It is peaceful. This is how it's supposed to be. There's nothing wrong with what I have here. And, and there was one more day that God adds to this creating. And you see something happening in verse 26 that you don't really see in the first 25 verses. And it looks like God is kind of alone. 25 verses. God's just doing this by himself. But then when you read verse 26, you start seeing that there's something different about the God of the Bible than all the other gods of the world religions. Because the, the terms change. He says in, on the sixth day, let us make man in our image, our own image and our likeness. I want you to circle in your Bibles or highlight, however you, however you do this, circle us, circle ours, because us and ours seems to be indicating that there is more than one, right? There's more than one who is present in creation. Now, yet in verse 27, he says, so God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So now we have in his own image. Sounds like it goes back to singular. That it's just God doing this by himself. Um, what's going on here in these first verses? Now, the name of God in the Hebrew here is Elohim. Elohim. Say that with me. Elohim. This is how God refers to himself in the beginning of his word. Now, Elohim, if we're looking at the grammar, this is a plural word. It's not a singular word. It's non-singular. Now, you and I, we're singular. It doesn't matter what culture wants to say. We're, we're never plural. We are only singular. But God refers to himself more in the terms of we and ours, right? Non-singular. And so even in his title and his name, it suggests something's going on here. Elohim. We are seeing the doctrine of the Trinity being built from the very beginning and the start of the Bible. The Bible is telling us that God created, and there's something different about God to get our mind around. That God is three in one. He's not by himself. Jesus was present with God at creation. Look at now John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John says, in the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, John says here that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was what? The word was God. The word was God. Where was the word? The word was with God in the beginning. Do you see the picture that's being painted by John here? That there is more than one that's going on. There's a trinity that it's happening. Paul explains what this looks like even more in Colossians chapter 1. It says, talking of Jesus here, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Was Jesus present at creation? Yes, he was present at creation. Was God the Father alone at creation? No, 
God the Father had the Spirit and had the Son as well. Now, this is confusing stuff. Theologians and scholars have been debating this in, for centuries and arguing about how this all works out. We're never going to figure out how this works out because what has been, been made known to us by God is all that he's given us to know. Right? So we can debate this all day long, but the Trinity is a reality of who our God is. So here's the deal for you and for me who are sitting here right now. People who say, man, I have trusted Jesus. I want to grow. I want my roots to go down deeper. I want a strong and a firm foundation. I want these things. I want to know the God that I follow, even though we may not be able to fully comprehend everything about God. When we're digging and we're wanting to know more, when we're sitting by the streams, when we're sitting by the banks, and we're being watered and fed by the Word of God, and we're applying what we're learning, there is growth that begins to take place. Our minds grow, our understanding grows, our faith grows. We begin to produce some fruit in this way. And we learn something very important in our time with God as we're growing. That the God of the heaven he wants us to know him. He's revealed his truth to us. The truth that he wants us to know. But we don't come to him on our own terms. We come to him on his terms. Who he is. God is so much bigger than our understanding of him. And probably the biggest thing for us to try to get our mind around is this idea of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three persons in one. Here's what I want us to do as we're just kind of kicking off our, our series this morning. I want us to, to go home this week. And I, and I want to ask you to pray that God would open up your eyes to greater things in his word. I, I, want, I want you to pray this week that you might be rooted in the faith. I mean, there's a really cool um, little piece on the front of your bulletin um, that one of our elders, Brad, has written about what it looks like to be um, rooted in the faith. Read that. Be challenged by that. Get into God's word. I, I want to challenge you to mark off some time this week to read Genesis 1 and to read John chapter 1. Grab a pen, grab some paper, write down some things that God wants to show you. Write some things down that you're learning about him, maybe that you've never seen before. Look at it through the lens of the Trinity. How is, how is God doing these things? Pray that he would reveal himself to you. Let me say something to the people <clears throat> who might be on the fence with God, um, who might be on the verge of sliding out of the faith, who might be one of the 20% who's ready to, to walk away, or who, who maybe never trusted in Jesus. Let's just assume, just for a second, that God did create like he says he created. Let, let's assume that Jesus and the Spirit were right there with him. Let's assume that what we read in the scriptures are true. If they are, wouldn't he be the most magnificent, the most creative, the most powerful, the most fun, adventurous, loving God that there is? Wouldn't he be? If this is true and we read it, wouldn't this be the most exciting thing that would change your life? If you're on the fence and you don't know about Jesus, let me invite you to know him. It's ABCs, man. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you can't do this on your own. That, that there is a heaven and a hell, and the only way that I'm getting to heaven is through Jesus. Admit that you are a sinner. So believe in Jesus. 
Believe in what he's done. You can never do enough to earn what God has already done for you. So, so believe in what he's done and then commit your life to follow Jesus. Admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, commit your life to follow Jesus. Get off the fence, man. Don't slide out, press in. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, thanks for this very complex, difficult thing to understand. <laughs> you. You. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. Creeds have been written about it. Fights have been fought about it. Theologies have been decided by it. My Father, we want to press into you. We want to know you. We want to be rooted in you. So would you just meet us in our prayer this week? Would you meet us in your word this week? Would you show us things about you that maybe we've never seen before? Would you dust off some things that maybe that we've forgotten? For those who've thinking about trusting you for the first time right now, God, I pray that you'd give them the courage, the courage to say yes to you and then to be discipled by somebody. And for us who have been growing for a while, I pray that we would pull somebody in say, I don't want you to figure this out alone. I'm gonna walk with you. I'm still trying to figure it out myself, but I'm gonna walk with you in it. So let us be disciples who are discipling others too. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.